Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Tom Woods Show. It is episode 2409, and I'm delighted to welcome Glenn Corey, who is the author of rather an interesting new book called How to Get $150,000 Liberal Arts Education for Free. Subtitle, 100 Books to Help You Better Understand Yourself, Others, and the World You Live In. That's great. That's a really, really great framing. And so obviously, we're not going to cover all 100 books. You can do that by getting your copy of Glenn's book, and you'll find it linked in the description of the video or on the show notes page, tomwoods.com slash 2409. Glenn, welcome. Thanks, Tom. It's a real honor to be on your show. I been a long time admire and appreciate all the great work you do. Thank you very much. All right. So I do want to ask you, because as I say, we're not going to cover all hundred. I do want to ask you in a minute for what would be, if you could possibly narrow it down, like your top three, the books that we just have to get their contents into our brains. But before we do that, can I just ask you more generally, what was the selection process like? What did a book have to do in order for you to consider it? Well, it kind of started out as a project just to organize my own reading. I'm what you would call a, I think, a voracious reader. And at some point, I noticed that my own reading was kind of haphazard. And I noticed that there were topics that, I guess, were, were discussed a lot, but I didn't really know too much about it. And I, I prefer to get more in-depth knowledge through reading than through, say, the news or something. So I, w- I went about being more systematic with my reading. And then also I was, just a little bit of background, I was in grad school and left before I got my PhD. But one of the things I always missed about academia was teaching. I've always loved teaching and I kind of imagine being given control of a course where I could force people to read a hundred books. And I thought, you know, what books would be worth people's time that gives them a good, like I think of a liberal arts education as just a giving you kind of a, a big picture overall understanding of how different and important topics work. So that was my approach was to think about what I think is important for people to learn about. And so let's see, I jotted down a bunch of them that, that jumped out at me, but I will say, let me, let me just point out that ones that I mention are not necessarily representative of this entire collection because Glenn covers topics like you would, I mean, there are plenty of books on philosophy, on history, on world history, on questions you wouldn't expect to be covered in a book like this. It's eclectic and challenging and very, very worthwhile. You'll flip through here and as I did, come across books you'd never heard of, but you think, oh my gosh, if I don't read this, I'm never going to forgive myself. So let's start with this. It's a completely unfair question. You've picked 100 books that are valuable. And by the way, it's a very similar exercise that I've sometimes had. I've sometimes thought, what if I had the world's attention for like 30 minutes? What would be most urgent for me to cover? Well, 100 books is obviously a lot more information than that, but it's the same kind of idea. 100 books that if everybody had that knowledge, uh, it would be better for them, it'd be better for the world, for society. What would be the top three? Now, I, uh, we were kind of talking about this a, a little bit. Obviously, this is a libertarian audience. You have Murray Rothbard's book, What Has Government Done to Our Money in Here? But for a libertarian audience, if I were to say, what are your top three 
Well, they already know about that book. So what are your top three that you would say to this audience? Well, I mean, those would be not on specific topics, but more how to go about thinking about things. And probably one of my favorite books is called Being Wrong by Katherine Schultz. And it's about how various philosophers, sociologists, psychologists, and today's educators think about the topic of being wrong and, and actually how our fear of being wrong and the emphasis on getting things right is actually misguided that we get a lot of value out of being wrong because you have to get, engage in a certain thought process to be wrong. And also, you, just from a realistic sense, you're never going to be right all the time. So it's good to deal with being wrong. And it's a very engaging and sometimes very humorous book. And the author talks about the deep biases that kind of militate against us, like admitting that we're wrong. And she talks about it in an episode where she had done all this research about being wrong. And she's talking with a friend of hers who clearly knows more than the topic that they're talking about than she does. And so she knows that when people are wrong, they dig in their heels and make stuff up. Yes. So her friend pointed out that she was wrong about something. And what does she do? She dug in her heels and made stuff up. <laughs> and this was at the end of her research. So she knows, you know, the fallacies and she just goes and commits it. And so it's, it's kind of a, a humbling book because she also talks about things where, you know, when I read it the first time, she talks about how we all think that if only the world would listen, they'd see that I have the most well thought out point of view that you can have. And so it's very humbling in that way, but it emphasizes the importance of being able to say, I don't know. Yeah. So that, no, that would be, let, let's pause because I know you have another couple titles to share, but I think back to when I was an academic and I was told that there will be a temptation if you're in the classroom, if a student asks you a question, you don't know the answer, that you'll BS your way out of it and that maybe you'll right. wind up making something up. I never did that. Uh, <laughs> Because I, I also thought it was, it showed respect to the student to say, that's an excellent question. I don't know the answer to it, but I will try to find out, or I, I bet I know somebody who does know the answer. And so the student did not feel like, well, I wasted my money on this college. The student instead felt in a way flattered that, wow, I have such an interesting question that it's going to take the professor an extra day. Well, he can wait an extra day to find out the answer. Secondly, it is a great exercise in humility to admit being wrong. Yeah. Because when you admit being wrong, you're not usually just admitting it to yourself. You're admitting it to at least one other person. And in the age of social media, sometimes to a very large audience. And that's a good thing for you as a human being to say, I was wrong about this. And I, even now, I find that difficult. I'd like to think that I've been forthright about when I've been wrong about something, but I probably could do better on that. And it would be not only good for me as an exercise in humility, but it would be good for others because it would set a good example. Because the other thing that we never, that you very, very rarely see in this world is a sincere apology, a truly sincere apology. I'm sorry I did that. Not right. I'm sorry I did that because I got caught. Not I'm sorry if you felt this way, which is a non-apology, but a truly sincere apology is as rare as somebody saying I was wrong. And yet both of those are as good for the sayers as they are for the recipients. Anyway, I'm getting a little bit philosophical and abstract. Yeah, and inter here. interestingly too, I, I think you increase your credibility when you say, I don't know. Because yes. then next time 
when you do express your opinion, people say, oh, well, when he really knows something, he knows it. But if he didn't know, I know that he would say he's unfamiliar with it or just doesn't have an answer. Right, right. And so interestingly enough, when you don't know everything and you share that, then people believe you more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because no one can know everything. Exactly. And I say that in particular as somebody who for years taught a survey course in Western civilization that went all the way back to the ancient Near East thousands of years ago, all the way to the present over the course of two semesters. And then I later expanded on that and and teach it for the Ron Paul curriculum. And it is not possible. It's not possible to know everything about even one era in that giant, absurd amount of material. But I was such a perfectionist. I used to spend all my time reading and reading and reading and reading to anticipate any possible questions somebody could ask. (laughs) I mean, so that kind of trained me to realize you can't, you can't know everything. But that's what makes me appreciate my friends and that I have a lot of academic friends. I have a lot of very well-read friends. So that when I inevitably don't know something, sure, I can go to a search engine and try and look around. But chances are I know somebody who really, really knows it well. And that's an opportunity for me to interact. Anyway, let's get back to your books. That's a fantastic, I've never read that book, but that's a fantastic theme for a book, Being Wrong. How about that? Being Wrong. Give me another one. Well, I happen to think that health is a very important area that's not addressed nearly enough in our education. And uh, so a very important book, I believe, is it's called Whole Body Dentistry, A Complete Guide to Understanding the Impact of Dentistry on Our Health. And it's very interesting, written by a dentist, of course, but he's, and this should run, endear him to your audience, he's ran afoul of the ADA, the American Dental Association, because he goes against some of their recommendations. And he, he talks about some very interesting research that show, and this is peer-reviewed, you know, available research that showed that, for example, a root canal with a certain tooth can indicate, say, cancer in certain parts of your body. It's just fascinating. And he thinks that everything, or at least a good part of your health, starts with what you eat. And obviously that has to go through your mouth. And so he believes that dentistry, and he, and it's a not super long book, but not super short either. And, it, and he really gets into some very interesting research. I was surprised to see that book because I, I thought, but I'd never heard of it. And I thought of all things to include, but again, your idea here is not necessarily that I'm checking off boxes that I, I let's say I need to have five books on so-and-so. It's rather ideas with which people should be familiar and it would be good for them to grapple with them. And maybe not all the ideas are, are going to turn out to be right, but they're all challenging and they all are fruitful for us to uh, reflect on. All right, give me yet another one, and then I'm gonna. Then it'll be my turn. Okay. the uh, The third one is called the Wholeness of Nature, and it's about the German poet. Most people have heard of him, Goethe. Most people will know him as the author of Faust and short stories. But he was actually a, a great scientist of his day, and he his way of looking at it and it's hard to do it justice, but it's a very, like um, Goethe's method was kind of trying to get inside whatever he was studying, like plants. And it might sound kind of wishy-washy or funny, but the book is worth a read because it poses a real challenge to the Newtonian way 
of doing science, which is to kind of cut everything down into their constituent parts. And then somehow, if you understand all the parts, you can put it together and understand how the whole works. But that doesn't always work. Sometimes wholes operate in ways that you don't anticipate from the parts. And so Goethe was a pioneer. And the author is at pains to emphasize that Goethe's is not a replacement for Newton's method, but it just complements the method that Newton championed. And the author of the book thinks that science could could benefit quite a bit from taking a, a really radically different approach than Newton. Well, in terms of health and science, now I want to bring up some titles that I picked out that I thought might be of particular interest to folks here. But as I say, there's a very, very broad array of titles here. Here we have a book that's about both science and health, and that is the Gary Taub's book, The Case Against Sugar. Now, he's uh, yes. a number of books. Um, mm-hmm. I, I beg your pardon? Yeah, no, I was going to mention that you had on a guest recently, Matthew Lishak. Yes, who t- well, he wrote the book Fiat Food. He mentioned, right, and he mentioned Taubes. That Taubes right. was a journalist who did some, was like the information about nutrition and health and science actually came from journalists like Taubes. You know, it wasn't from scientists working on the inside. Right. So Taubes is a very interesting, and he goes into the history of sugar and the kind of behind the scenes battles at say the FDA and, you know, the experts. And one thing that he mentioned that I, I was really blown away by was that there was a time when what made cigarettes so addictive was that the wrappers were laced with sugar. And that was the addictive ingredient in cigarettes. So that was really unbelievable to me. And the way sugar has become subsidized and is really a protected industry. But the damage is, is really serious and it's contributed to the obesity epidemic and diabetes. And Well, not to mention, I mean, if we think about the so-called food pyramid that so many of us right. grew up with, and yeah. you would read about, well, you got to have, you know, eight to 11 servings of grain per day or something like, you know, crazy things like that. Well, people would translate that into, oh, okay, then I'll have a few bowls of cereal. And the cereal, you know, is okay, some of it might not be full of sugar, let's say, but it's still full of problems. But some of it is really full of sugar. And people would be eating it thinking, well, I'm satisfying the my daily requirement for right. taking yeah. this stuff. Yeah, I call that the morning candy industry, <laughs> the cereal industry, because that's really what it is. It's a kind of a tangent, but... Lishiak talks about the bizarre world of Kellogg, John Harvey Kellogg. Oh, yeah. That, that whole story, again, from the, the previous episode, it really is true what they say sometimes about truth being stranger than fiction. I mean, you just if you had invented the story of John Harvey Kellogg, nobody would have believed it. Right. But, yeah. Given his various obsessions. Yeah. And, but just that alone should make you think, well, could he really have been that right about it? What I should eat in the morning, right? You know, so exactly the the whole creation of the food pyramid is was so highly politicized, and people with political power pushed certain foods because they benefited from, say, profits or you know that 
structure has been in place for a long time. You have on your list here, oh, and I think you said at some point in the book that you were trying to have only one book from each author so that even though right. some authors have tremendous, a series of tremendous books, you were going to choose only one. So an, right. one person from whose catalog it would be difficult to choose only one is Thomas Sowell. But oh, my God. Yeah. you chose Intellectuals and Society, which I actually haven't read that one, but I've read oh, Sowell really? to have a pretty decent idea of what his thesis is. So what's the problem? I mean, aren't intellectuals our most informed people and therefore wouldn't their proposals for arranging society be the most reliable? Before I answer that question, do you remember where it was on my list? Was it the very last one? It was the last book, yes. And that's because we people who read a lot can have a tendency to think that, oh, we've, I've read all these works, so now I, you know, I'm more informed and more educated. And, and Sowell puts that idea to rest because the people that he criticizes are the intellectuals, people who trade in just ideas, people whose ideas are never tested in the marketplace. And in fact, to even suggest to most intellectuals that their ideas should be subjected to the vulgar marketplace would be an insult. And so Sol just in his you know, characteristic in-your-face style just shows how intellectuals have been wrong so much. And, you know, we're living in a period now where we're told to trust the experts. And so Soul is is a very humbling experience for people who read a lot, I think. (laughs) Well, in particular, the types of intellectuals who would, because I mean, I suppose you and I are intellectuals technically. So I wouldn't say, you know, we're not saying all intellectuals are misinformed or more than that, they're, they're overambitious in what they think they can accomplish in rearranging society. But, but that is the, the issue with them in general is that they have these blueprints for how society ought to be rearranged. And if they could just move these chess pieces on the board, everything would work out better. But they very rarely seek to answer fundamental questions like, why are the chess pieces arranged the way they are now? It could be through sheer stupidity and, and idiocy and, and, and whatever, but it could also be because it accomplishes something to have them set up that way. And so that's why I know sometimes some libertarians seem a little bit impatient with a guy like Edmund Burke, who would emphasize the importance of tradition and organic development, or even, what was it, in the American tradition, was it John Dickinson who said, let experience be our guide, reason may mislead us. Because you could sit there, and I'm right. sure on a piece of paper, you could write out a blueprint for how you personally, according to your personal values, think society ought to function. But it's not always going to work out that way. And so I I sometimes try to make an analogy between society and a house, that some of the walls in your house are supporting walls. And if you knock them out, the whole thing comes down. Others are there just, you know, to separate the rooms. And you could technically knock one out with no problem. Well, I think of intellectuals, most of the American intellectual class, as being people who really are not interested in distinguishing between the two different types of walls. They're just going to take their wrecking ball. And some of us are warning that you might be destroying the whole house. Right. Yes. Sol goes into such a great discussion of people who have a more, I guess, maybe humble view that there's a lot that they don't know and that you don't really know. Like under COVID, they some jobs were called essential, others were non-essential. Well, we found out that 
just about all jobs are essential because they exist. So they exist to serve some need. And then, you know, you could disrupt a supply chain by calling some job inessential or non-essential. So th- there's a, a, a lot greater humility, I think, that comes with understanding that there's a lot you don't know. And that sometimes even no matter how hard you think about it, you can't necessarily anticipate all the possible outcomes of what you're doing. So even what would appear to be the salutary motivation of wanting to try to minimize the number of automobile or let's say fatalities or injuries, people say, well, then we have to install seatbelts in the cars. But what Sam Peltzman found was that the overall number of automobile-related fatalities was not affected by the introduction of the seatbelt per se. Because we said what wound up happening was now more pedestrians wound up getting killed. Now, why was that? Now, this, it was hard for me to grasp this until Bob Murphy fully explained it to me. But what happened was people subconsciously became ever so slightly more reckless in driving because they felt more secure behind the wheel. And so now there are just as many people getting killed, but now they're outside the car. Who, who would have guessed that? And I said to Bob, that doesn't seem right. I don't drive around the street thinking, well, I've got my seatbelt on. Look out. Right. I, I don't think that way, but I don't have to expressly think that way. He says, imagine how you would drive if a giant spike was going to come out of the center of the steering wheel if you made even the slightest mistake. <laughs> you know, you would be in, in fanatically paying attention to it. So any, every step that moves us from that ever so marginally has an effect on that outcome. So, all right, so soul. Now, I want to do, maybe we'll do some of these because we could do whole episodes on some of these books. Maybe we'll do a few of them as a kind of a lightning round where I'll just say, give me the, what do I take away from this book? Okay, what is the central thesis that I'm going to get supporting evidence for when I read this book? So, Okay, I want to tell you something though. Sure. That one of my conditions for writing this book was that I had to read all these books. So I did read all of them once. But I, I can't say that I remember all of them. No, 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 but you won't. You, I, I promise you're going to do fine. This is going to be great. Okay. I pr- this is going to be your, your best day ever. Are you ready? Uh, okay. Th- these will not be difficult. So okay. first of all, William Easterly has a book on how the West oh. has tried to aid the developing world. Now, what's the name of that book? Right. Do you remember the name of that book? The White Man's Burden. White Man's Burden. So how'd that turn out and what went wrong? Well, the problem was that people, often very learned people, intellectuals, I think uh, the example that he used at the time was Jeffrey Sachs. Big picture people who think that, you know, there's some fundamental aspect of, you know, underlying all this society's problems versus people who come in and solve a particular problem at a very local scale. And these incremental changes solve problems that are addressed one by one instead of imposing some grand, you know, structural change all at once, turn out to be better problem solvers and greater benefactors, I think, on society. All right, that's a good one. Okay, how about James Grant has a book on 1921, and I've had him on to talk about it uh, years ago, and I just saw it in your book, and I can't remember the title off the top of my head. Is it called The Forgotten Depression or what is it called? Yes, The Forgotten Depression. Okay, so what's the idea behind that? The idea behind that is that when that depression happened, the Fed was still at a kind of leave things alone 
we know how the free market works. It'll work things out. And that's exactly how it happened. And in some ways, Grant points out that that depression was more severe. Prices actually fell further in that depression than they did in the Great Depression. And yet, the government didn't get involved. The Fed didn't manipulate interest rates. And the economy bounced back a lot quicker. I mean, the Great Depression really didn't end until around 1945, right? I mean, Bob Higgs put to rest the idea that the war got us out of the Depression. But it was really, at that time, there was still a great respect among politicians and bankers, central bankers, that the free market really does work. It's got great self-correcting mechanisms. That's right. In fact, Joseph Schumpeter cited the downturn of 1920-21 as evidence that the market solves these problems, that you don't need expansionary monetary policy or fiscal policy. All these Keynesian remedies that we've come to expect governments to carry out. Keynes hadn't even written his book by that point, The General Theory, because this is early 20s and he wrote that in the 30s. And it did reverse itself. Now, there has been arguments in the journals back and forth about, well, the government really did do X and Y, but we won those arguments. So, all right, so let's see. What else have I got? Uh, Okay, so I I said I was going to do three that I was just going to pick and kind of throw them at you. So how about Lewis Mumford on cities? Uh, What do I need to know about cities that I learned from him? Well, Mumford is a really interesting person. He started out as a architecture critic for either the New Yorker or the New Republic. And he's what you would call a classical liberal. And so he explains the roots of cities. And cities basically started out as protection rackets, right? They started out as settlements that grew. And he kind of ties this to the beginning of government because you had these spaces where people decided to live a sedentary life, but that made them vulnerable. And so you had these different factions, warlords essentially, who promised protection if they only paid them some tribute. And so from there, cities expanded, and then there were all these benefits of people coming together that allowed for all sorts of different activities, entertainment, more products, you know, interactions with people, ideas exchanging, and so forth. And so there does seem to be some sort of size limitation that makes cities feasible, but the city was definitely a great innovation in Mumford's view. That is definitely among the longer books on my book. It's a sizable one, but I consider it a very satisfying one. Mumford's an excellent writer too. Well, another of the long ones is one that is quite familiar to libertarians, and that is The Creature from Jekyll Island. Now, because of course that's about the Federal Reserve System. So just to put everybody's minds at ease who have considered tackling that book, did you find it difficult to read? Not at all. The writing style is very fluid, very easy to read. And also at the beginning of every chapter, he kind of provides a summary. And at the beginning of the book, he provides a guideline to help people who might not want to read the whole thing. He shows you how to get the most out of the book like what's essential and what you can skip if you're not interested in the details. I remember thinking, because I'd been given the impression that it was a conspiratorial book. Right. And I thought, oh, okay, well, I'm not really interested in that. But the Federal Reserve is a conspiracy. And they did right. need it. Yeah. I mean, how much more conspiratorial could they get? But also what I generally find is that a lot of people who 
not all, but a lot of people who embrace, actually embrace that kind of term tend to be very bad on economics. But G. Edward Griffin is excellent on economics. He is a rock solid Austrian. I mean, Rothbard would have had no beef with anything he has to say about economics. I remember when I first read that book, speaking of being conspiratorial, he just pointed out the simple fact that the Federal Reserve is owned by private banks. Like it was a membership. And I thought, no way. And I looked it up and sure enough, I mean, all that information is out there. He doesn't, you know, he's not speaking in hushed voices, so to speak. And in terms of the structure and, you know, how the Federal Reserve is governed, it's all very accurate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's right. He's absolutely right on. But the consequences of central banking that he talks about are really mind-blowing. And that, that's one of my favorite books. You know, it would be in my top 10, but not quite in my top three, probably because of its length. But it's a really important work, I think. Now, I've had Jason Brennan on the show, and he's mm-hmm. talking about why not capitalism. But I know right. you have in your book both G.A. Cohen's book, Why Not Socialism, and Brennan's response to that book, Why Not Capitalism?, But I hadn't realized that the Cohen book is also a fairly short book because the Brennan book is pretty short. And as you point out, you could read them both in a morning. But then just after that morning, you'd have an enormous amount of food for thought because you would have come face to face with two very able defenders of two very different systems. Did you feel like, well, both sides made good points or how did you come away from that? Well, I think Cohen and... I want to point out that David Gordon of the Mises Institute, when, that, when he, he reviewed Cohen's book, and he said that Cohen is now deceased, but he said that Cohen was the smartest living socialist thinker in the country. So he was very complimentary, yeah. David Gordon. He thought that he made the best case for socialism. And I mean, certainly Cohen lays out the case that most people still believe is the soundest reason, a a moral case for socialism. And Jason Brennan's book is a direct response to it. It came after, and Brennan talks about how he's addressing Cohen's arguments. He goes directly at Cohen. Hey, everybody, let's take a minute to thank our sponsor, Monetary Metals. This is a company I've been using for a year or two, and it's fantastic. Now, if you're like me, you probably own some gold. But also, if you're like me, wherever you have that gold stored, it's probably just sitting there, not really doing much for you. If anything, it might be racking up storage fees so that over time you wind up with less rather than more. But what if you could put that gold to work for you? I mean, what if you could get it to do something for you? And that's exactly what Monetary Metals is all about. You can grow your gold year after year with Monetary Metals, which offers interest on gold paid in more ounces of physical gold. You can earn 2 to 5% on gold and silver in their leasing program, which supports qualified gold-using businesses. And if you're an accredited investor, you can earn higher returns, think double digits, in their gold bond offerings. All the interest is paid in physical ounces of gold, so your total ounces grow and compound year after year. So over a 10-year period, for example, 2.5% annual, 100 ounces becomes 128. At 3%, 100 ounces becomes 134. At 4%, 100 ounces becomes 148. You get the idea. They've been at this for seven years. Jeff Deist, formerly of the Mises Institute, recently joined forces with them. Their vice president of relationships, Addison Quayle, has been at my house. Uh, He's been a a friend of the Tom Woods show. I've seen him at conferences all over the place. These are our people, and they're doing something really, really creative and important. So start saving and earning in gold. 
Go to monetary-metals.com slash woods to learn more about how to get started with your account. Don't forget the hyphen. That's monetary-metals.com slash woods. Let's talk uh, about a different subject now. John Mersheimer's book, The Tragedy of Great Power Politics. Right. I think John Mersheimer is misunderstood sometimes, and I think sometimes possibly even on purpose as a way of trying to discredit him. He's misinterpreted as saying that the world should be run in such and such way, where the right. great powers do such and such. But he's not saying there's no ought in this book. No. The world ought to run a certain way. I think rather he's saying we're not going to have a good outcome unless we recognize certain fundamental truths about the way the world actually is. Regardless of how we may fantasize about wanting it to be, we have to begin with how it actually is in practice. Right. And I think he lays out the best case, and he's an example of somebody who's not a libertarian. So, I, you know, one of my important objectives with the book was not to persuade anybody. I didn't want anybody to feel like I was trying to guide them toward embracing, say, my point of view. Right, yeah, it doesn't come across that way at all. Well, that's good. And, and Mersheimer is, he may not be a libertarian, but he's pretty sober-eyed and... Like he's got a deep understanding of history and how human psychology works, you know, when you're talking about people in very powerful positions and how one country will interact with another for various reasons. And this is the way it's been done forever. And, you know, the school of thought is known as by its, I think it's German Realpolitik, but it's more like, it's like real world politics. And so sometimes Mersheimer, when he has something to say, let's say about Ukraine and Russia, he'll employ his way of thinking. And people right. say, oh, he's saying that Russia should dominate X, Y, and Z country. He's not saying, right. he's saying that you should expect that this is the way the world is going to be, that these great powers will expect that there'll be certain spheres in which they extend influence. That That's just the way it is. Maybe you don't like that and you don't have to like it, but you have to acknowledge that that's the way it is. Yeah, and it has, I mean, in that particular case, he has, has nothing to do with being a Putin apologist or, you know, an advocate of Russia or, or you know, it's, you can still be, I mean, it, I don't get the impression that he hates the country. It's the U.S. It's just that you do certain things to other countries, they're going to retaliate. And, and pointing that out is not, does not make you a stooge for the other country. Right, right, right. Okay, so let's say a word about a book that I like very, very much. And indeed, if I could come up with a list of books that I wanted people to read that I thought if they read them, their minds would be expanded. And, and yes, it's true. They would also come closer to my point of view. That is true. <laughs> but, 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 in, but in a way, that's really only incidental. It, this is a book that forces you to ask questions about ideas you've, you rarely examine that you just take for granted. And so I'm talking about Michael Humer's book, The Problem of Political Authority. I've had him on to talk about that book more than once. Yeah. And I, I think that is an extremely well done book. And I mean, if you think it's not thought provoking, I think you're not being honest. Right. I think it would be hard to get through that book and not at least say, huh, I've never thought about it that way. You know, if, if you're not convinced by his arguments, then you have to admit that he points out at the beginning in the introduction to his book that he starts from premises that everybody accepts and he takes them to their logical conclusions and applies it to people in positions of authority. 
and and he believes that's that should be the standard. Yeah. Right. That you know you should make an exception once people cross the line from the private sphere to the public sphere. You know, a moral action is moral or immoral, not based on criteria like that. Well, what I like about the book is that it's full of analogies. And so as your point is, we shouldn't change the way we think about morality when we go from private to public sector. So in the private sector, we wouldn't say there are 20 of us out getting drinks and 19 of us have voted that you have to pay for the drink. You know, we would never accept that. We would immediately see that that's illegitimate and that you have no right to do that. But if yeah, suddenly, democracy. Uh, yeah, right. But if suddenly these people magically, these are exactly the same people, exactly the same people, but we sprinkle a little magic dust on them and say now they're government <laughs> officials, that becomes technically legitimate. And his point is if it's not legitimate the first time, what makes it legitimate the second time? Is it, I mean, what, what is it? I mean, you could come up with some theories, but the point is you have to at least recognize that the, this requires a theory, that this requires someone to defend th this. It's not simply obvious right. uh, that a, a select group of people uh, have the power to, to, to violate what we would consider moral norms in any other situation just because they have a special uniform on or a funny hat or, or whatever. And the book is just relentlessly pounding away at that type of theme with example and analogy after example and analogy. So highly, highly valuable. To th Even if you disagree with him, you have to think through his examples and say, well, you know what? I, at least on the surface of it, this does seem like I have some explaining to do. And that's a very, that's a very good thing. Right. And then another thing I like about that book is that even though it's in the, and with all my books, I tried to convey the point or pick them because they don't have to be politicized. Everything is so politicized these days. And Michael Humer in his book shows that even in the realm of political philosophy, there are certain things, certain assumptions that are sound assumptions that lead you to certain conclusions. And that, you know, if you think about the book's humorous arguments, you realize that somewhere along the way, you're making assumptions that are unjustified. And that even in the realm of politics, things don't have to be necessarily politicized, if you know what I mean. Let's take, a, since we're, we've been at this for quite a while, let's take a few more titles and bat them around and then call it a day and urge people to get your book. I hear a lot of talk, even to this day, even after his death, about John Taylor Gatto on schooling. Oh, yeah. So what do you think somebody walks away with reading his work on that subject? That's a big question. Yeah. Government-run schooling and, and really any sort of bureaucracy around education isn't going to have as its main focus, really, education, right? Schooling is one thing. Education is another thing. And the education bureaucracy isn't necessarily focused on what most people think school is for. And that they, he was really an amazing person. And, and it's important to know that he spent 26 years in New York City's public school system. And he won Teacher of the Year Award three times. So he knew what he was doing and he would do things like without telling his, the principal of his school, he would like give students an assignment to explore some school system down in New Jersey. So he'd, like, they would take the bus, you know, leave the school, take the bus down to New Jersey and do like a visitation there and come back and report on what they learned. 
So he, he was he was really iconoclastic and found creative ways to allow students within that very limited environment and constrained environment to really get it in education in ways they wouldn't. Well, then what exactly was the school system up to, if not primarily being focused on conveying knowledge? Teaching obedience to authority. That's what Gatto's main argument is, is that the subtitle of that book is The Hidden Curriculum of Compulsory Schooling. And so he goes through seven, seven things that I, I don't remember off the top of my head, but one of them is to teach obedience. And that's what's important, I think, for people to realize is education in, in a formal government-run system is, is about that more than learning. All right, let's do a couple more. How about Daniel Everett on how language began? Yeah, language, I think, is a really important topic because it really sets us apart from the non-human world. And going into the details of, of that book is, is, is hard. I, I can't do it justice. But it's, language is a great example of, of, of people creating something just through use and exploring how it works. And discarding what doesn't. And it, I mean, it takes place on a daily basis among, you know, countless people. And I know that doesn't do the work justice, but anything does it, does it emphasize if it's making that point, then the other side of that coin is that there's no central direction. So you have this major, this crucial institution that evolves without anybody with a bullhorn shouting out commands at anybody. Right. Right. It's a, it's a great example of that. And the richest languages in the world, like, say, vocabulary-wise, English, you know, doesn't have a language academy. You know, other languages that are governed by an academy tend to have a more constrained vocabulary because you have, like, committees who decide who can, you know, what word can enter the language and be used officially, whereas English, you know, doesn't really have, doesn't have that at all. And then finally, let's see if I pick out one. I got two more. Well, I'll just say Hunt Thule, The Great War. I'll just say, oh yeah, that's a fantastic, short, digestible book on World War I that covers it in all aspects, the military aspect, but also economics, domestic uh, uh, you know, life uh, and, and economy. So there's, and also Hunt is one of us philosophically. And he cites Rothbard in his book on, on mm-hmm. depression and, or he may not have gotten to that except in an afterword but I know that there's some Rothbard work that's probably perhaps his work on the progressives. But Hunt is a great guy, very knowledgeable. And sometimes when you try to read a book on the world wars, the vastness of the literature just seems oh. overwhelming. You can get what you need to know, honestly, by just reading. Right. That's truly amazing. Yeah, I was fortunate to come across that book because really World War I is one of the transformative events in, in history. And trying to find a, a single bo- book of manageable size that lays out like the really important points. It's, it's really an amazing book because he really knows what people would be looking for who are reading a, a one-volume work on World War II and he hits all the main topics. And yeah, I mean, there are, you, you can't even specialize in World War I anymore. Like you have to specialize in a particular battle or something. And so, but, so to have a, really well-rounded overview of such an important event is a great 
service. Well, I was going to bring up, but I think I'll leave it here. But you have Howard Goodall from Babylon to the Beatles, How Music Has Shaped Civilization. I have not read that, but I am interested in the history of music. And I think I've typically thought of how civilization shaped music. But, I, but it's interesting to, to imagine that it may actually go both ways. That's right. And listening today to something that was so far back, say, Baroque music, may seem like, you know, we're living in a different world musically today, but actually the changes have, have been more incremental. And even today, you, you hear, like, uh, I think the rock group Nazareth has some riffs in one of its songs that are based on Rachmaninoff. And then there's another book that I didn't include in mine because it's longer called um, Music is Subversive History. And that would, be, that would tie in nicely with Goodall's book because it explains how everything was interconnected and developed. Like, like Bach, we think of as a, an old stodgy like, like establishment figure, but he actually was not. Bach was a, a revolutionary and was anti-establishment in many ways. So the development of music, it, like you say, it was an interplay between music and society, and, and they work both ways. So, but I've, I'll also mention Paul Johnson's book, The History of Art, of Western Art, I think. It's just um, you the History of Art, because he, he, he goes beyond the History Western. of Art. Yeah, I mean, music and art, I think, are extremely important. And... Often there are electives in, say, a college, like a, if you're getting a bachelor's degree, art and music will be electives. But I think they're very, very important. Like, they, like if you think about the caves in southern France, northern Spain, where it, that have artwork on their walls, you know, it shows that, that a concern for creative expression goes back so far in, in human existence. And understanding the impulses, which is what Goodall was trying to get at in, in his book on music, was kind of the deep impulses for music and why they exist and why, why everyone turns to music, why all cultures have music. And, and they may find different expressions, but they're really deep-seated. So music and art, they, one of those books would be in my top 10, maybe not in my top three, but... Uh, when he's talking about the top 10, it's really hard to choose because, you know, there are a lot of topics that I think are important to know about to be, you know, educated and well-rounded. Well, the book, once again, is How to Get a $150,000 Liberal Arts Education for Free, 100 Books to Help You Better Understand Yourself, Others, and the World You Live In by our guest, Glenn Corey. I'll have it linked in the description of this video as well as on our show notes page tomwoods.com slash 2409. Well, thanks very much, Glenn. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's been a pleasure. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of the Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.